Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. Forensic pathology fills that whole bill for me. Being able to speak for people who don't have a voice, being able to tell someone's story who has passed away, and being able to right some wrongs that have been done by traditional medicine. In this episode, we interview Dr. Joy Carter, the first Black chief medical examiner in U.S. history. Dr. Carter shares her wealth of knowledge about forensic pathology, revisits some of her past cases, and shares how she continues to address racial bias in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Distrust and Disparities podcast. March is Women's History Month, and we will continue to celebrate women who are trailblazers in the healthcare field and addressing inequalities in the medical field. We are very excited and honored to have a special guest with us this week. Applause. (laughs) (laughs) Joining us this week, we have the world-renowned Dr. Joy Carter, the first Black American chief medical examiner in U.S. history. If you can recall, on episode 26, Autopsies and Racial Bias, we discussed Jocelyn McLean's wrongful incarceration over the death of her newborn baby. Dr. Carter played a pivotal role in pointing out the blatant errors in the original autopsy report and also advocating for Ms. McLean's release. We are excited to have Dr. Carter on this week's episode to discuss her amazing career and how she continues to address racial biases in the field of forensic pathology and medical examiners. So welcome, Dr. Carter. We're excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure. And your uh, podcasts are so interesting and so welcome. Um, this is not trivial information. You know, the access to medical care and that's denial for people of color has been going on since the enslavement era. So I'm, I'm always glad to pop in and share some information with you. Yes, thank you. So we'll jump right into today's interview and we'll start with an icebreaker question. And we wanted to ask about your first encounter with a medical injustice or health disparity. It could be something you or someone close to you experienced or something that you read about that really stuck with you. Oh, gosh, there, there have been so many. But I, I think my first formal introduction to healthcare disparities was from a course I took in high school. And there was a focus on disparities of health in Washington, D.C., I was a high school student in Indianapolis, Indiana, so it struck me, first of all, learning about a city that was majority Black population back then in the 70s, and the fact that they had one of the highest rates of infant mortality and mortality for women and childbearing age, and of course, substance abuse 
and premature deaths from diabetes and hypertension. And that was in the 70s. And it put Washington on the map for me as uh, my desire to want to move there and live and work and to be a physician and to be educated at Howard. So it was the whole ball of wax. And at the same time, I'm thinking this is a city with a majority Black population, and yet the poor access to health care. Wow, that was amazing. From the very young age at high school, just recognizing that you wanted to make a difference and just being able to tackle health disparities. That's amazing. And that kind of leads us into our next question. From a very young age, you knew that you wanted to be a medical pathologist. Can you explain more about that? Oh, certainly. Uh, Actually, as far as time goes, it was the following summer uh, in between my freshman and sophomore years, having taken this course and then being exposed to a a postmortem examination. Everything just kind of rolled into one. And interestingly enough, when I expressed my desire to my guidance counselor of becoming a physician, my original counselor said to me, you wouldn't make a good physician. And just poo-pooed the whole thing. And I'm like, you don't even know me. You know nothing about me. And I'm not going to accept this. And I walked out of the office and I ran into, and that was a white male, by the way, a guidance counselor. But I walked out of his office and I ran into another guidance counselor, this wonderful, sweet, older black lady. And I told her what had happened. And she said, honey, come on in here. I got something for you. And so (laughs) she is the one that got me into the program. It was an immersion in medicine for inner city youth. And that was the hospital that I was assigned to that allowed me to see an autopsy all by happenstance, literally in the same year, roughly six months after that course in public health that I saw my first autopsy and I was 14. And I knew then that's what I wanted to do. And not only did I want to become a medical examiner, I put on my, uh, my life board, as I called it, I was going to do it in DC. So that's just strengthened for me that that's where I wanted to be. And that's where I wanted to help. And I wanted to ensure that people of color had equal or better than postmortem examinations, a spokesperson to tell their story of how death had occurred, as well as help people live better lives while they were still living. Yeah, that's a really important part too, the living a healthy life while you're still alive. But It's also awesome, too, that you did have that Black woman as your counselor step in and go, okay, don't listen to him, ignore him, and you are already doing that and be able to guide you. Because that's a clear example of you need someone that looks like you, that will advocate for you, that will show you a pathway when others will want to just say, oh, no, 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 this isn't for you. So luckily she was there. Because, you know, he was clearly so, so wrong, just ridiculously wrong about what you could achieve and what you ended up doing, especially in your long career. That is so true. I've been a uh, person that encourages mentorship and everything, not just healthcare, but everything. 
that we need to see ourselves doing it. I always mm-hmm. put my own photograph on my books. I want to know I'm black. And I want you to know you can look like me and achieve anything. Um, I think it's very important when we have all these career fairs that we show people in all steps of careers how to be a business owner. And don't let someone tell you that you can't do it because my grandmother would always say to me, um, if you don't think it, why should anybody else? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's something about having that self-confidence and determination to achieve goals. And then I always add my own, if you can't see it, you can't achieve it. So we need to show ourselves. So that's why I applaud uh, young people like you doing these podcasts to show people we are out here. And even if we're not shown in Black history, we are everyday heroes. And it's up to our friends, our family, our teachers to point us in the direction to say, there's still a space for you to be the first. This is something that you can do. And if they did it, you can do it. And then we cannot forget our past. We cannot forget the history that was stripped from us. And remember that language, art, science, astronomy, that came from the continent of Africa. It wasn't invented in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so I always try to inspire young people, don't forget, don't, don't say math is bad. Math came from the continent. So we need to know our history and know that we can do the same or better or best than others that want to take that away from us. Yes. Yes. Dr. Carter, you just highlighted our whole podcast mission, making sure we look at our history, celebrate the things that we're doing, promoting organizations, individuals that are out here working to dismantle racist practices and also uplift the next generation so that they can see that you can do it. And there might not be many, but the door is open. You just got to get in there, get your foot in the door and you can make a change. That's right. And we wanted to just ask you more to discuss with our audience more just about your role in the pathology field. Can you speak to our audience about what you do as a medical pathologist? Well, I I first want to give props to going to medical school at at Howard. It it was a dream of mine. And I I want to go back for for history in this. My mother, bless, bless her soul believed in reading and she believed in reading a variety of things. And we had Ebony magazine, Jet magazine, a couple of newspapers around. And um, when I was in the fifth grade, my fifth grade teacher introduced world history for the study of the continent of Africa by pointing me out and saying I could stay in the sun longer. Wow. And I remember vividly, <laughs> being initially um, embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Then I got angry and, uh, you know, I held my head down. My peers were looking at me like I had just landed from some planet. And I I vowed then and there, I am never going to feel like this again. And I was able to remember an article in the uh, Ebony magazine about research going on at Howard University Hospital on skin cancer and how important melanin was. And I raised my head and I said, you know, yes, I can stay out in the sun. Melanin is protective. They are doing research at Howard University. I said, and it protects our skin from aging. And I said, 
my mother doesn't have wrinkles like you do. <laughs> and and I, I, I walked out of the class and I went to the principal's office and I called my mom. <laughs> my mom was teaching in another town and she must have said, hold my chalk because she got to that school. She walked into the class and she gave a lecture on black history mm. and enslavement. You know, she emphasized people. You know, there's no ethnicity called slave. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she she just ripped it up. And that was, I said, I will never, ever feel embarrassed about being black. And I made up my mind. I was going to go to Howard. I was going to be taught by black professors. And to bring you forward today, I was literally talking to the very famous Dr. Vivian Penn, who was my chairman of pathology at Howard and is a good lifelong friend and made inroads for women in pathology. So I, you know, this kind of wraps everything up. The whole idea of pathology, which is the study of disease, that is the basis of medicine. Uh, pathos, meaning disease and ology, study of. And I'm one of the people, I want to know what it is. I want to know how it appears, how it manifests, how it's treated, and how you can prevent it or how you can cure it. And pathology is a general field of study in your second year of medical school, but it's also a medical specialty because you assist physicians in making a diagnosis, managing disease, and following it. Forensic pathology is a subspecialty area that is one of the few non-hospital-based things that you add on what you learn about diagnosing, managing, and following disease in the human body. But in forensic pathology, you are using disease and injury to determine how people die in a specific location. So um, it's a long field of study after medical school. I trained for an additional six years because I wanted to perfect my skills. I needed to have knowledge uh, backwards and forwards on anatomy and physiology how disease occurs, how it's transmitted, and then also how the body reacts to to injury. So to me, it's the whole ball of medicine all in one. And it's not quite like the shows on TV, but there is a certain element of investigation. There is an element of being able to explain to families what's going on or what has happened, being able to explain to other medical people uh, that there are ethnic differences on, on disease presentation, how it manifests in the body, how we follow it. And then you have to get rid of the falsehoods. Falsehoods like, you know, Black women don't get mammograms in time. That might be because of lack of access to care. Yeah. Or, you know, you have a higher mortality rate in certain things. That might be because people of color are going to publicly funded hospitals where they are studied sometimes and reported on, or the um, any disease you have is overly represented in Native Americans, again, because you are going to federal hospitals where you are reported on all the time versus having access to care. So forensic pathology fills that whole bill for me. Being able to speak for people who don't have a voice, being able to tell someone's story who has passed away, and being able to right some wrongs that have been done 
by traditional medicine. You know, I mean, I knew the origin of HeLa cells when they were still given the falsehood that, that the cells came from a white woman named Helen Lane. Mm. So, you know, you've got to put your foot down and say, no, that's, that's not the way it is. Mm-hmm. Or, or to say that um, in forensic pathology, you are supposed to do a thorough postmortem examination. So when I hear a non-black forensic pathologist describe a black person's body that I couldn't tell that they were bruised because of their skin pigmentation, mm-hmm. the hair on my neck, it, it's not standing up. It's shouting, waving, and like, no, <laughs> you didn't do a thorough autopsy or you frankly don't know what you're doing. So it's one of those things that to me is the epitome of telling someone's story, helping people live healthy lives. And ensuring that these falsehoods, these mischaracterizations of what Black people are, how we are not different, that you have to stand up for and be able to shout that, not today. In fact, not tomorrow. Yes, yes. You touched on all the questions that we were going to ask you just about the myths in the field, the misconceptions even coming from TV, but also what they're teaching and teaching you in school, because I know going to nursing school, most of like the textbooks, and I went in like 2009, they didn't show too many African-Americans or people of color. So just like the presentation of certain skin disorders, like how you would diagnose it would be different in an African-American. And schools today, they need to be culturally competent in how they're educating students. Yes. there There's a young man, I cannot think of his name, but I think he's in the United Kingdom, medical student, uh, perhaps from Africa, but he's working on a book that is detailing presentation of disease and people of color. But what, what disturbs me is that these things are written in books. We are teaching that Black people's skin is thicker and their pain perception is different. And that's not the truth. You can, I can take sections of skin. I can see there's a thicker layer of melanin, but the skin itself is not thicker. So saying that people of color don't feel pain the way people of low melanin do, that is something that needs to be eradicated and talked about because that goes into individuals who are trained as law enforcement officers to say, oh, well, they don't feel pain, so I need to put more pain on them. And we have to get rid of that. Uh, We are human beings and everybody at this point should understand that everybody has that one drop of black blood anywhere in this world, because we know from science, life came from the motherland. You have to accept that. And we have to stop looking at people and assessing them when you don't know. Um, I did research my first year of medical school at Howard on how diagnoses were missed because we were looking at this ethnic grouping of disease presentations. And my uh, research was on cystic fibrosis. And I found three cases of young black children who had been missed time and time again, because the assumption was that this didn't occur in people of color. Mm. And I tell people all the time, I have examined over 20,000 bodies of all different ethnicities, ages, nationalities. And once I opened that body, 
there is no difference. And we have to stop this racial bias that will continue into the afterlife if we don't stand up and say no. And if we don't have more people that can address the needs of everyone so that there is better access to care. You will probably be very spoiled in Washington, D.C., uh, Baltimore, Atlanta, Nashville, where we have black medical schools. But I'm in Colorado Springs and I have to search really a long time to see a person of color. And, uh, you know, God forbid I'm looking for a doctor because there are very few. You can count them on your hand here. Hmm. So that access to care. But at the same time, there are thousands of uh, active duty military people here who need to have someone understand, yes, I might be black, but I get sunburned. We have to start better medical education as if we are all human beings, not that we are a different species. So true. Yes, you made some excellent points. I was listening to an interview that you did and you stated that pathology is the outermost area of public health and you can determine how certain people and populations are dying. And with this information, you can address the root cause to prevent unnecessary deaths. Could you speak on that a little bit with our audience? Oh, absolutely. I have been saying this for 30 years because that information was revealed to me when I got into pathology into forensic pathology as to all of the records kept across this country. Medical examiner and coroner records are kept indefinitely. Though they're always there. Whereas medical records from a hospital can be destroyed after 20 or 25 years. So you have this resource that people rarely access that show you, uh, for example, you can go in and you can look around the D.C. area and look where you have intersections where you've had traffic accidents that will show you ultimately where they need better signage or where you have trains going through the black and underserved communities that don't have the arms that come down for safety. You can literally plot these things on a map. When I was in Houston, I plotted where we were having deaths from hyperthermia that showed this particular population in this group and neighborhood didn't have air conditioning. So when the heat was up over 99 degrees and humidity was 99%, elder people were dying from hyperthermia. So you can take that information and put it in and show this to people who are not in the medical field, but make decisions such as politicians, such as the state that controls signage and and traffic. So that is how you can take information that is never destroyed. It's in a usable form. And all of our areas that have medical examiner and coroner offices that can tell you how many people have died from pneumonia or how many children have died within that first month of of life, or how many seniors are found dead and they have died of starvation. It it is amazing that you have this, this resource that really should be utilized to help people live better lives. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm so glad you touched on that. So hopefully somebody that is listening to this podcast will take that information and we can 
tap into that. And it's kind of like we're working backwards to prevent accidents or certain processes from happening. So I'm glad you touched on that. Have you checked out our website? There you can find all of our episodes and show notes. You can even listen directly on the site and catch up on any previous episode you may have missed. You can read our bios and see what we're up to. Also, we made it even easier to contact us. Just fill out the form on our homepage and click submit. We invite you to recommend guests and topics we should feature. So what are you waiting for? Go check us out at distrustanddisparities.com. Okay, so in doing research and trying to look into your career, we discovered that you have, of course, like you said, been calling out racial bias in the field of pathology since you've entered into the field. But we found that during your forensic pathology residency in the 80s, you were the only Black pathologist in the office of the medical examiner in Miami, and that um, you noticed that poor Black women were turning up dead in dismal settings, but their deaths were just being classified as drug-induced accidents. So how did you go about advocating for further investigation for those victims? Yes, that that is an interesting topic. That centers on the term excited delirium, which is misused today and overused. It was developed in Miami by the late Dr. Charles Wetley, who was the deputy chief when I did my training. I went to Miami specifically to work with the chief medical examiner, Dr. Joseph Davis, who was a magnificent person and my mentor back from my high school days. Dr. Wetley and I were not close and he definitely had notions that black people were different. And I had to call him out on several occasions While I was in my fellowship training, he was collecting cases that appeared to be Black women that were classified as simply drug overdoses. And uh, he was calling these cases deaths due to excited delirium because Black women were having sexual intercourse with Black men, or as Dr. Wetley said, the male of the species. Oh, (laughs) yes. Dr. Davis began to have these monthly meetings with detectives. Dade County, which encompasses Miami, also has several other smaller towns. And so these all had police departments and they began to have discussions on cases they were seeing at these monthly meetings. And it didn't look like excited delirium. It didn't look like drug overdoses until there was one case that was found with a teenager who had no drugs in her system. And the detective began to question this classification of excited delirium and that these were all accidents. And the cases were reviewed by Dr. Davis. There were a couple of women who had been assaulted and had escaped. And they were examined um, by some dentists. And they finally realized they had serial murder going on. And these were all young black women. And I'm sure the families were wondering what was going on. And it started making it into the news that a series of murders going on, a serial killing had been going on and misclassified. And as I was leaving, 
Dr. Davis reclassified all of these cases as homicides. Shortly thereafter, Dr. Wetley departed that office and went to the New York area. But my first encounter down there was the fact that I'm, I'm your first Black physician here. I am female and I am outspoken. And uh, Dr. Wetley had made a comment in a uh, case review meeting, and he made this comment and said, Black people die from drowning because they, they don't know how to swim. And my, my response was, well, how did you meet every Black person in the country? I haven't met them all. And yeah. I said, I, okay. I swim. My, my father swam. I said, my, my friends, we met in Indiana at the Natatorium all the time and swam. I said, there's a Natatorium in Washington, D.C. I said, and Howard has a swim team. <laughs> what do you mean people don't? Right. How can you say that? That's so racist. It is. I said, I think what you mean to say is black people don't have the same access to swimming mm-hmm. pools in certain communities. Mm-hmm. That would be much better than some blanket statement, black people don't swim. So that was my encounter with Dr. Wetley. And so from that point on, I was like, uh, anything you say, I'm going to have to put, you know, a whole pound of salt with that because oh, it's yes. just not adding up. And so that's what it was. It was racially based and biased that sort of looking as to seeing why black women were dying and being found dead, you just put them into a bundle, said it's all from the male using crack. That's what it came from. Wow. Oh, goodness. Just the the blatant ignorance, but like willful ignorance just to say that we're disposable. We like we don't deserve enough care or thought to thoroughly investigate why are we ending up dead? Because he would have never classified it that way if it were a bunch of white women, would have never even gotten to that point. Well, as you know, even in today's world, when a black woman is missing, mm-hmm. uh, there's slow media response. But when it is a white woman is missing, and we just saw that last year mm-hmm. with the Latino case, yep. uh, you have to call them out on that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I continue to say we need more people of color in this field, in every other field. Yes. Uh, we don't have enough representation anywhere. But we have to stand up and say we are worthy. We are worthy of being looked for. We are worthy of having complete examinations. And again, do not get me started on, I couldn't tell if they were injured because of the color of their skin. My response is, you're just not a good doctor. Mm-hmm. Facts. Yes. That's what that is. And I love how bold and just speaking the truth and just addressing downright blatant racism, just confronting it head on. And everyone in the medical field, if you're the only one, you have to speak up because like you said, you were his first black medical student. Had you not been there to check him and to confront him, he's probably still doing what he was doing. But at least you said something and those women, they were able to get justice. So if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you channel your inner Dr. Carter and stand up to people who make blatant racist statements like you have to speak up. Because um, I was speaking to one of my my former, we went to school together and she was saying there's like a doctor. If 
the patients don't speak English, if they don't speak English well, she kind of like just dismisses them. She'll just be like, I'm not using the translator phone. They came to this country. They need to speak English. My friend, she was like, and the doctors and the, the people that work on the unit, they just let her get away with this. And she said to her, like, you're not going to speak to the patient like this. Here's the translator phone. Please talk to them properly and communicate what you need. So it can just take one person just to stand up, just to stop the cycle. So we really need to do our part. It may seem hard, but it's what needs to be done because they feel emboldened to stand in their racism. We should be able to do the same. You know, I I always tell people, I mean, I, I, I don't treat patients anymore, but when you go see your doctor or your nurse, you need to let them know how you're feeling. They, they can't just get it all from putting something on you like they did in Star Trek. We have to be able, you know, you just don't put on a thing and it, and it diagnoses you. But we have to be able to tell our healthcare professionals how we're feeling. You know, I say keep a record of when certain things happen, shortness of breath, pain, swelling, all of that. And then you tell them because mm-hmm. it's your history and you need to inform them so they're armed with information on on how to treat you and you have to be respected by your healthcare professional it's not just a one-way street i've earned my degree but you know at the end of the day we all die so there is no thing in my imagination that one person's better than the other we're different and respect is two-way and i very much believe in the oath i took when I became a physician uh, to help. And therefore I can still treat everyone like they're somebody. Like I want my my sister treated or my, you know, how I would have wanted my grandmother and mother treated. If you do not respect your patients, and I tell this to, to young doctors, you know, people will go see a doctor once a year if if you're lucky, but they will see their barber and beautician with like every week. Mm-hmm. And so you need to be reminded that you don't have any patience. You don't have a job. <laughs> and if you don't respect people, they're not going to come back to you. And so we need to begin to to teach that that compassion, respect, that everybody deserves some treatment. And we have to stop this thing of I'm, I'm better. I, I'm different. I'm not better. On episode 26, we discussed Jocelyn McLean's case. So go back and listen to that episode if you're unfamiliar with it. But initially, we want to jump in. Dr. Carter, how were you notified about the case against Jocelyn? I received an email from an attorney that knew someone that I knew, and that was related to a person who was a civil activist in the Houston, Texas area. And she asked me if I would look at a case. And I, I generally don't directly work with families on, on homicide investigations because you need to have an attorney represent you to get things I need to look at. Hmm. But this was uh, Miss Tara Lang. She was the attorney from Mississippi. And her what she said was so compelling. I said, I just have to look at this case. It has kind of been my passion to look at cases that I think have been overlooked or, or done poorly. I'm very much critique how postmortems are done. You know, I've been a teacher in this field for several decades, 
And so she initially um, sent me a copy of the autopsy report. And then she sent me a copy of the medical history of this infant child. And I started from, from that point. Traditionally, as a forensic pathologist, you should review all information that's available before you do an autopsy. So I started out reading the medical record and the care of the infant and how it was unsuccessful and then that the child died. And then I read the autopsy and I just couldn't believe what the autopsy was was saying. Um, I called Ms. Plang and I said, whoever did this autopsy didn't look at the record. Mm-hmm. They did not look at the medical record that was submitted. And what struck me was the fact that, one, the case took almost 16 months. The postmortem took almost 16 months to complete. Mm-hmm. And then it was signed off on by two other physicians. And of these three physicians, none of them had requested or reviewed the medical records. They signed off on an obvious natural death as a homicide with no investigation, no one gathering medical records, no one putting one and one together and coming up with two. It was just ridiculous. And I informed Ms. Lang, I said, you know, this autopsy is so poorly done I'm just going to make a list of everything that is incorrect from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Because to write a report would probably take me 25 pages to illustrate that everything about this case is wrong. Mm. Starting out, not looking at the medical records, not recognizing medical therapy that the body was presented with. And that was in the diagram. I I just could never understand how you can call yourself a physician and do this type of shoddy work, which ended up with Mr. Clean being put in jail, Mm -hmm. uh, charged with homicide, injuries that are clearly therapeutic, misconstrued, tests that were ordered and never reviewed, and then to not feel like you've done something wrong. And, you know, I I mentioned before on your previous podcast 26 that I kept seeing throughout the record investigation shows that the mother is the only one who could have harmed this child. And I continue to ask, what investigation did anybody do? Because if you'd done investigation, you would have gathered the medical records. You would have talked to the physician and nurses in the clinic. You'd have talked to the people that were trying to get this infant medevaced to a NICU, to a neonatal intensive care unit. You would have talked to them. You would have talked to the laboratory. You would have reviewed the laboratory results. You should have recognized what therapeutic changes were on the body because they were documented in the record and they were on the body. And I just couldn't understand the other doctors not saying, well, let's look at the record. No one questioned this case. It was just the worst thing ever. Yeah, that's the same reaction we had. Like, how could you, you basically jump to the conclusion that it was the mom without 
you could look at the body and tell something was done, medical interventions, the drains, the tubes, they were still in place. But you were like, no, the mom did this. Yes. Crazy. That was yeah, insane. And then also with that case, once you were contacted and sort of got involved and like you said, made your list of like, this is everything that is completely wrong with this. I know then you mentioned how you reached out to the Innocence Project and on Jocelyn's behalf because, you know, she needs to have justice for what happened. She lost her newborn baby and then went through this whole ridiculous circus because people just didn't see her as a human being. They didn't see her baby deserving of a proper examination. And then like you threw her whole life up in the air and said like, Oh, figure it out. Like we don't care. So I know when we had covered the case in terms of an update, was there any that you had at the end of last year from the innocence project and where they are with dealing with Mississippi and how they handled um, what happened to her daughter? Yeah, this, this, this is a very good point for an update on, on this case. I had gotten ready to fly to Mississippi to state in court all of these errors and how they had been ignored all of this time. The day before I was set to go, the doctor who did the original autopsy recanted on his findings of homicide. He finally looked at the medical record and years later said he didn't get the medical records. Again, such hogwash. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was so upset, you know, they finally agreed to take away the charges, but still saying the investigation showed only she could have hurt her child. That was on the order to dismiss his charge. And that just infuriated me. So I contacted the Innocence Project. I said, this case cannot go into the dark. You know, what's happened to her should, should, it needs to be answered for. And they agreed to represent her, a new medical examiner, because they had removed the chief medical examiner while I was reviewing this case for quote unquote unknown reasons. Hmm. Um, So there was no one left in the office that knew the case. So I continued to contact the new chief medical examiner in Mississippi. I said, please look at this case. It needs a re-ruling. To date, I do not think they have re-ruled the cause of death on this child, an eight-day-old neonate. And the Innocence Project has filed on behalf of Joyce Lynn with the state, but nothing has been done. And if you have seen the news in the last couple of weeks, the politicians are trying to do something different where they appoint judges in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So I'm still looking at this like, what's going to happen? The least that could be done is to make a proper ruling on the determination of cause and manner of death of this child and that she should be able to get satisfaction as to how she was treated. I mean, when Ms. McLean was finally, uh, McLean was out of jail, she had to pay for an ankle monitor. Mm -hmm. She had to deal with everything that was put upon her, with her remaining children, with her loss of job, everything that happened to her. And the least you can do is have some, some satisfaction 
But even today, I was looking at the news and, you know, they made a uh, tremendous award for a death in custody in jail in Oklahoma today of like $68 million on some of these for-profit prisons and jails. And I am hoping that this case will come to light with due justice for this woman who was so badly mistreated and showing how horrible the death investigation process is in Mississippi and I'm sure some other states. But I am keeping my fingers crossed and trying to follow and see that they see this all the way through and give her some justice for everything that she went through. Yes, I agree. And we want to keep up with the case to see what happens as well, because we pointed out on the episode, I think it was like the day before the, I think his name is Brent Davis, who did the medical exam. They were still trying to get her to take a plea deal where she would face almost life in prison. They were still pressuring her to take a a plea deal. And after spending like a year and over a year in jail and you just want to get to your family and just being worn down and worn down by prosecutors, I can understand how frustrating that is. And also I wanted to point out, we need to keep highlighting and amplifying this case because how many other Jocelyn McLean's are still in jail because of blatantly, you know, erroneous medical exams. It's just like, we just need to pop open this can. We need to keep talking about it, keep discussing it because it's not just happening in Mississippi. It's probably happening all over the country. So we, we need to keep calling out attention to this. Yeah, that, that is true. And I, I, I was telling a you know, group of young physicians just the other day on, online, I said, I am always going to be hypercritical of postmortem exams performed on people of color where they're not respected as people. And I will not accept a shoddy postmortem exam. As long as I have life and breath to speak out about it, I will. And this case cannot stall. I, I have checked with the Innocence Project. They're still working on it. They presented their findings, but they're going to stick to it too. This is exactly what you said. It's one case, but in my opinion, it is the tip of the iceberg. And had this woman not had a defense attorney who was familiar with medical practices and who was not going to be told to just sit down and be quiet, um, you know, had she not contacted me, I don't know what would have happened. But once she did, we, we became a force that you do have to reckon with. We're not going to go away. We're not going to leave Ms. McLean by herself. This case will not be allowed to just fade into the background. This is a case that I am positive is tip of the iceberg on many states, many situations where you don't care to do your very best, but we as people of color demand it, that the very best be done for us too. Yep. And speaking of the tip of the iceberg, we wanted to touch on a particular research study that you were a part of, um, we talked about it in episode 26, where they were assessing cognitive bias amongst forensic scientists. Could you start by telling us how you got involved in the study? Cognitive bias and people that make uh, forensic pathology decisions was the title of the article. I was 
one of four physicians with two, with actually two researchers and an attorney that worked on this case. And it was a provocative study that presented two scenarios that was sent out to roughly, I think, 130 uh, individuals who identified as either forensic pathologists or those who make forensic pathology decisions. And that's important to, to understand that not everyone who makes these decisions are forensic pathologists. Coroners are generally not physicians. You could have wardens. You can have uh, ship captains. You can have sheriff's department people who actually complete a death certificate. So the survey was sent out. There were two scenarios of an infant child being killed, uh, whether or not it was a grandmother if they were black or a boyfriend if they were white. And there was a huge difference in how these cases were, were treated. And the study was published with the caveat that, you know, this study shows what everybody knows, that everybody has some form of bias. You need to be aware of your bias, particularly when you were supposed to be a neutral forensic pathologist. And me being one of the four forensic pathologists and the only Black uh, doctor involved with the research, boy, the, the article came out and my goodness, the members of the National Association of Medical Examiners were extremely offended. They took it upon themselves to say they were being called racist. The term was never used in the, in the paper at all. They got so angry that uh, a group of the forensic pathologists, and we were all members of the National Association of Medical Examiners, they filed an ethics complaint with the four physicians, including myself, that the base of the ethics complaint was that we made the organization look bad. And my response was, you made yourselves look bad. Mm-hmm. And if the shoe fits, exactly. wear it. You know, yes. if someone asks you if you're a racist and, and you're not a racist, then you say, I'm not a racist. Mm-hmm. That's all there is to it. Yeah. And some of them felt, well, we're going to be asked from now on if we're biased. And if someone asks you if you're biased, what do you say? Everybody's biased about something. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm left-handed. Mm-hmm. All you right-handed people have it better than me. So, you know. <laughs> I'm biased about this, but I'm not biased. It was so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And um, so when they filed this ethics complaint, and there are individuals who wrote letters and complained about the article, the head of the ethics committee had written one of those letters. So you and yourself are unethical because you're the head of the ethics committee. What's wrong with you? Oh, so I, I guess they were trying to defame us or shame us, but. The reaction of some of these forensic pathologists was so typical of individuals who do not treat everybody with respect. Mm-hmm. And they made themselves look so foolish. And we were represented by a worldwide law firm, Pro Bono, who just simply pointed out that what, what you're doing is unethical and it's really stupid and you need to stop it. <laughs> and yeah. The organization got the letter and they immediately said, oh, we re-examined this. And no, this there there was really no validity to the ethics complaint. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of you all. I I have other things to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, that sounds really draining. Yeah, it was 
honestly, it was it was picked up by the New York Times because this was going on during the George Floyd, the officer being held responsible for his death. That was his his trial. That was going on. One of the people that was supposed to actually testify was the one who made the ethics complaint. Oh my goodness. <laughs> He says in the New York Times article, everybody spins the wheel of death to determine the cause. I'm like, I said, that's so embarrassing and reflective of, reflective of you. Are we playing a game? Wow. Like, this is yeah. not a game. I said, um, you have just, I said, how unethical of you to say that? And it was picked up by the science magazine. The reaction of the forensic pathologist to this article that was research. That were a set of scenarios. So it was the reaction of all these doctors that got picked up by all the national science magazines. Mm-hmm. And so they, they in themselves looked so foolish and so biased. Mm-hmm. It, it was just ridiculous. But on the heels of this case came Jocelyn's case. And I said, you know, this is the most egregious example of bias mm-hmm. because this shows you, you didn't care enough to do a real examination. You didn't care enough to review the medical records and your entire establishment didn't care enough to do the background, to do the investigation, to read the medical record, to know what you're doing before you make homicide charges even all the way up to the prosecutor. You knew about my report and you should have put in to have those charges dropped a year before. Mm -hmm. So it was the glaring example of what we know that goes on in this country to date. And their response, it was just unnecessary. And like you said, it just proves their bias versus each field, you need to have research so that you can improve the field so that it can advance. Why not look at this study? Okay, there is bias. What can we do to check this bias? What can what interventions can we put in place? And I'm curious now, like, has there been any new research on this cognitive bias? <laughs> the, uh, the lead author, Dr. E.T.L. Drorg, it's over in, in the UK. He was a lead author. He has done these types of research on so many professions in the forensic realm. He was one of the experts that was involved with the National Science Foundation Review of Forensic Pathology and Death Investigation from 2009, finding bias, finding irregularities, finding non-standard performances of postmortem. All of those things, he was one of the people, and he uncovered a bias within um, the question document sections that looks at forgery and in certain institutional laboratories. And they kind of all came to a agreement that, yes, we need to work on bias. But telling a physician that they're biased apparently is a bad thing because it did force the National Association of Medical Examiners to continue the committee I was chairing that had just started after Mr. Floyd was killed. That was the Committee on Diversity and Inclusion. So they continued that committee and they put a Black doctor in charge of that since I left 
the entire group, but policies and procedures. You know, it's it's one thing to say something, but that's just lip service. You know, actions are what prove that you're sincere. So, you know, I, I say to people, you know, as as we end uh, Black History Month, that you know, guess what? You know, March fourth, March fourth, March thirteenth, uh, April first. I'm still black. So if you're really committed to inclusion, you should include me all year round, not just the busy month of February. They have to be real about that. Black people, white people, red people, brown people, tan people, they die every day. So we need to be pushing inclusion and we need to be pushing cultural training because cultural competency, I'm convinced, cannot be reached with everybody because they're not open-minded enough. But you can at least be cross-culturally trained. So let's make that real. Let's set real goals about what we need to be doing. Yeah, you you said it excellently. We Less lip service and actual changes to policies and procedures and addressing these old myths that are still ingrained into society. Like you said in the beginning of the interview, how people still are saying Black people don't feel pain and things like that. This stuff is just rolling over with each generation that's going to medical school. So there needs to be a stop. We need to have more people in place, committees that are addressing bias in the field. If you are enjoying this episode, you should consider buying us a coffee. Yes, a coffee. That small gesture will help us continue to create quality episodes and content. Click the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes or check out our website at distrustanddisparities.com. And we want to segue kind of to our last segment. We just wanted to talk about just spirituality and grief. And I know in your line of work every day, like you said, you you dealt with death on a daily basis. And I just want to know how do you emotionally handle dealing with death? I am a very spiritual person. I think the reason I dealt so well with my observation, the first autopsy was kind of, I knew in, in my heart, in my brain, that uh, the spiritual side doesn't die. The physical side does. And what remains is the physical side. And I can back it up with science. You know, back in the 19th uh, century, we didn't have the advances in medicine that we have now. So if you ever have the opportunity to go to a casket museum, you'll see the caskets are designed differently. Because when you couldn't measure and determine if life had left the body, then you had wakes. Wakes mm. were in the home. The old homes that had the bay windows that are six feet wide, that was where the wake was held. This is before we had EKGs and EEGs. EKGs, as you know, measure the heart's electrical activity and the EEG measure the brain's electrical activity. So if you put science and medicine together, and I'm a scientist and I'm I'm a physician, energy has left the body when you have a flat EKG. And you have no waves on your EEG. But when a person is alive, you have evidence of electrical activity. So in my 14-year-old mind, that's how you explain the science. Energy 
is never destroyed. It is changed. Right? Yeah. So that's how I always see it. I have always maintained a spiritual outlook when I do postmortems. And I've done over 20,000 in a 40-year history. I've kept that spiritual awareness. And I think it's, I've always described my career as a calling because I've always believed what I was trained by Dr. Davis, who introduced me to the rules of the nobility of the field, the compassion for someone who's lost a loved one, and the fact that I have the privilege of telling that last story of what happened to them. And I've always maintained that. And I maintain it because I understand the difference between life and death. I also understand my focus has to be on my case when I'm doing it. And I have to do everything that I can to tell that person's story. So I have to have a really good understanding of anatomy, physiology, natural disease, injuries, the body's response, and what goes wrong. And to be able to explain that to the family, first and foremost, to the treating physician, secondarily, to the law enforcement, perhaps, third, and fourth, insurance, fifth, might even be media. So but to be able to explain that. And when I am working on a particular case, I am focused on all of that at that time. I give it my 100% attention. And when I am not working, I take a little key and I lock it up in here. And I go to my home and I unlock the rest of me so I can renew and go back and do that the next day. Otherwise, you don't focus on that. And I can remember having horrifying cases that if I didn't focus on my job, which is documentation in duplicate and triplicate, so that I can recall what happened, that someone can be held accountable for a death or that changes can be made, or that the family can understand, I have to be very detailed, very focused on that one particular case. And that's how I've always done my work. And when people ask me, what's the worst case you've ever had? My answer is the next one. Mm -hmm. Because at that particular case in time, everybody has a significant case. There's no such thing as, oh, that's a lightweight case. That's someone's death. And it's been my experience that the stronger the relationship is of the decedent to the family, the longer the grieving period is. Mm -hmm. And so I've always counseled people. There's this no boundary. There's no time limit for grief. So someone can't say, well, get over it. Tomorrow will be my father's birthday. And he passed away when I was in medical school in 1981. I still grieve him. He was my dad. I moved on, but I still have the pangs. And so we can't be so quick to say, why are you still grieving? That was a strong bond. It was a relationship. And grief moves like a like an energy. And mm-hmm. you can't you can't forget that someone's grieving. Even if they're yelling at you, um, because you know they're so confronted with the immediacy of the loss, you have to understand that in order to, I think, have longevity in this field, and in order to 
maintain your compassion because the death process is different for everybody. And if you have a belief, whatever that belief is, it does help you manage that grief. It doesn't get rid of it. It just puts it into something that's a more usable product. Yes, completely agree with that. Yeah, I wanted to get your opinion on this. I know during the pandemic, we lost so many lives and we kept hearing we need to get back to normal. We have to get back to normal. And even I would say in the nursing field, um, I worked in the emergency department during the pandemic and we were losing so many people and we just had to keep going, keep going. And typically if we lose somebody in the ED, we'll do a debriefing where we kind of honor their life. We'll talk about what we did and how we tried to, how we did our best to try to keep them here. But during the pandemic, we didn't have that time. And just us as a society, we were grieving on a worldwide level. And like you said, the energies, I was, I felt so conflicted. It's like, we got to keep going, keep going to like get back to normal. But it's like, I want to slow down. Like this is, you know, the energy just felt so heavy. Like if you could just like speak to that. Oh, certainly. First of all, Hats off to nurses who have much more direct patient care than any physician does. And of course, to my colleagues, you know, it was so bizarre because as a forensic pathologist, I always wear a mask. I've been wearing a mask on a bunny suit since they came out. And then to have my colleagues not wear a mask and then not be able to get to them. Um, I also did not stop working at the time I was in California and I was the only doctor that did what I did. But it was, it was a tremendous time because it certainly showcased lack of access to care. And we did know that this type of infection takes hold in individuals who have underlying diseases. So smoking, obesity, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, coronary artery disease, and cancer certainly left the population reeling across the world. And the fear, uh, the fear in healthcare, the the fear of public safety officers, that was real fear. There was, during that time period, a tremendous increase in suicides. And there was a tremendous increase in what I consider avoidable traffic accidents that were fatal and tremendous increase on like triple substance abuse, substance Mm -hmm. abuse, overdoses across this country. It was, it was palpable. You know, when I had the opportunity, I would take myself and my dog in my isolation and go to the ocean and breathe in nature and watch the waves come in and be renewed. But, you know, at the time I was in California and we saw the spread. It started out in in nursing homes and it wasn't uh, the patients who were traveling worldwide. Mm -mm. But, you know, this country didn't do the right thing. They didn't shut down international air travel Mm -hmm. after receiving the letter from the WHO. That was one of the suggestions. It wasn't done until the cat was far out of the bag. And, you know, as a scientist, I I know how viruses travel. 
it, it was just tremendous. I have always described myself as a, a germaphobe. So I had this huge bottle of hand <laughs> antiseptic <laughs> that it, the bottle was so big that I didn't need to buy another bottle because I had it right there. I had a sign on my door. Don't come into my office unless you wash your hands. Yeah, that was how I was before the pandemic. Mm. And being a dog owner, I had the same big bottle at home. I never had to go out and buy that stuff. But people all of a sudden began to pay attention to how germy we are. They never thought about touching uh, a door, uh, an elevator button, a bottle of mustard, or even when you're getting gas. I think about that all the time because that's how disease spreads. And, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist and as well as being a, a, a physician. So it was a new time of educating people as to how disease spreads. And when I said I studied public health back in the old days, they traced our waste and the fact that we didn't have sewage and people threw their garbage out in the front or the back of their homes back in the old days or purple fever was passed by doctors that didn't wash their hands. So we had to kind of go back and tell people. And some old articles came out that I had written in the 90s about hand washing <laughs> <laughs> or about, you know, I mean, your grandmother told you to wash your hands before yes. dinner. Yes. You didn't come in the house from playing and just pick up a piece of fried chicken. You knew better. But we, we forgot about that. So we had to go back and teach basic health, public health 101, but then dealing with individuals who felt the isolation of not being able to meet their friends. That was the silent pandemic of suicide, overdoses. And the other pandemic that we saw, but wasn't talked about as much, was individuals who were afraid to go to the hospital and have their physicals, see their doctors. We had a lot of people who died from disease that could have been diagnosed or treated, but they were afraid to go to the hospital. So all those things rolled into this ball of what is normal now? Isolation, lack of family and friends, lack of energy, poor eating habits, uh, all those things rolled into one. And now what we're seeing is people saying, get back to work. They don't want to go back to work. And now we're looking at all these mass firings in the tech world Mm -hmm. because they found out that some folk don't work well at home (laughs) while others do. So... It's this whole new society. And I think we also found out that people need people. Yes. You need an outlet somewhere, somehow. And so all that newfound isolation for some people was absolutely not good. And I'm hoping, uh, should we have something else come up, that there'll be better guidance from our federal agencies not flip-flopping because of a president who has no knowledge about what he's talking about, but that we have a newfound respect for those people who had to stand up and say, hey, this is a virus and it's still here with us today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need to 
look at that time, that time period needs to be studied. Instead of saying, get back to normal, we need to get, get back to better. Yes. <laughs> that makes sense. We need to look at what works and we need to implement those things. And speaking of doing like energy and connecting with people, like we're getting to the end of the interview. We just wanted to talk about like what you do for fun. I know Camille, she pulled up that you enjoy bird watching and photography. So if you could speak on that, because that helps with your energy and renews your passion so that you have the time and energy to work in the pathology field. Yeah, I I am a high energy person. And I was actually telling one of my students that I'm mentoring uh, today, I said, you know, the one thing I started doing in college, because I had to work in college, I had three jobs and I tutored and I had to keep my grades up. But I started Sunday evening is my care time. Now, this was long before this became popular. (laughs) I'm talking about in the 70s. (laughs) But I, I would cut off extraneous activities. And I could just think about my week, plan my week, cook my meals for the week. And that grew into, um, in medical school, um, I've always loved walking. That's another story in itself. But being out in nature is refreshing for me, taking care of plants. I'm a dog lover. I used to go uh, down Skyline Drive after a night of call in dealing with individuals who came into the emergency department and didn't make it. Getting that heaviness off of me was a drive, skyline drive, you know, or going to Great Falls and and watching the water and watching the rocks. For me, it's a process of getting back to, to nature. Even now, I like a nice long walk in the morning after I have my first cup of coffee. It just kind of brings me down, brings me back, back to center. And yet I still love birds. I still love photography with uh, wild birds. And so we're just putting up some um, wild bird feeders so I can attract the, the singers and all the other types of birds to, to the backyard. But just being able to uh, get back to nature. I, I like to get to nature because nature is not controlled by, by man. And so that's always been a way of refreshing myself. And uh, I like to dance too. Put some music on, and I will dance. Yes, so. <laughs> yes I love it. <laughs> I guess the last thing I know in our pre-interview, you told us about your mantra that you live by. So, if you want to just share that with our audience, oh, I have so many. But <laughs> the one thing I say is, <laughs> live while you live. That's one of them. Uh, you know, have that cupcake, work it off the next day. My other one is no one gets out of life alive. Mm-hmm. So to me, it puts everybody on equal footing. And my other one is I might have been the first. I will definitely not be the last. And I can sit today and say I'm I'm not the last. And I, I want to continue to inspire young people, male and female, to get into Uh, forensic pathology, to get into health, to get into all kinds of businesses. We're all different. We can all do something different. And, you know, if if everybody's down on the field playing, there'd be no one cheering. So get out there and find something that you like to do. Explore it. Get a mentor. Whether you want to own an electrical company 
or you want to earn a law firm, or you want to discover a cure for cancer, get a mentor to see if it's for you. Try it on for size. If it's not, move to something else, but don't let anybody cancel your dreams. That's it. Yes, I love it. That's beautiful. I love it. Well, thank you, Dr. Carter, for coming on the show. I I know I learned so many new things. I can't wait to re-listen to this and take notes and we can discuss so many different things. Like we are so honored to have you on the show. Like we really appreciate you coming on, sharing your expertise your knowledge and just your courage just to address racism just head on, like stopping it right in its tracks. Well, thank you for having me. And I um, follow your podcast, as you know, and I'm so glad that you are taking this step because this is where it starts. And sometimes old folks, we need to kind of step aside and encourage young folk like yourselves to keep doing it and we'll support you because you're sharing information in a way that's more acceptable and it's far reaching. And I really appreciate what, what you're doing. So keep doing it. Thank you. Thank you. And did you want to tell our audience the best place that we can follow you? And we're also Dr. Carter. She is an author. She's a lecturer. She's written three books and probably going to write a few more and we'll link those on our website. But where can our audience connect with you? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram as Doc Doc Joe, since I'm a uh, scientist and a physician. That's what the Doc Doc is. I'm on there periodically and I try to share some whimsical, some beautiful and just some downright common sense. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at DistrustPod. Thank you.